Hey everybody, it's Sean Peck from Cage and Death Dealer. You're listening to Focus on Metal. Turn it up! Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of the wonderful world of Focus on Metal. So before we dive into this week's show, uh, you did notice that I had Sean Peck up front there doing the old ID for us this week, and I just wanted to give a shout out to Sean that uh, his new uh, his new show over on the Steel Cartel channel over on YouTube is uh, it's actually pretty damn good. What show is that, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. It's called uh, The Metal Daily News. And I will say, though, it doesn't seem like he does it daily, but uh, he does put it out uh, pretty recently. He's been doing it for a couple weeks now, and it's always a little bit offbeat, a little bit irreverent. He doesn't mind talking shit about things as well. So if you want to check that out, what you want to do is obviously head over to YouTube, search for Steel Cartel, and within that channel, you'll see a playlist called the Metal Daily News. Again, good stuff out there. Uh, one uh, week before last, he was talking about KK's Priest and all kinds of good stuff on that one. And the latest one he just put out, he's uh, making fun of some other folks that are uh, in the news these days and also giving you some serious metal news as well. So again, the Metal Daily News by our buddy Sean Peck. Check that one out and uh, you might actually like that one. I mean, with all the stuff that's out on YouTube these days, I've actually watching more YouTube now than I am even regular television. I don't even know why I'm paying for cable anymore. I should just switch over and uh, just do all the cut the cord stuff because definitely some great guitar stuff up there. Almost all the pedal companies up there, they have uh, shows. They're regularly releasing stuff every week. Good stuff up there like Metal School. And I uh, just search around. You one link into another. Like I said, I think I'm watching more YouTube these days than I am actual TV. But anyways, now we're like three minutes into the show and I haven't even said crap about what we've got going on this week. But it's been a few weeks since uh, we did our Story of Pete Part 1. I know you guys have been waiting breathlessly so we can continue on with Pete Mikowski's story. And yeah, we had a couple weeks of detours there. And I did say the first week we ran Pete that for all I know, we could end up doing that. Didn't seem like it at the time. And the next thing you know... Yep, that's what I'm doing. Taking a detour for a few weeks, but we have circled back again. We have not forgotten. We're not going to wait all the time like we did to actually get part one out before we get part two out. So this week, we pick up from where we left off with our journalist, author, all-around nice guy, Pete Mikowski, giving us his whole story, his insight into the industry, all that good stuff. So grab yourself a cold one as we continue with the story of Pete, part two. Hello, Richard. Hi, Pete. How are you? Yeah, mate. You all set to go? Well, yeah, I'm all set. Oh, you can hear me, yeah? Yeah, oh, perfect. Excellent. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, just quick, what I wanted to do quickly, just backtrack on one question you asked me, yeah? Yep. Uh, which is, because uh, you said when I, when I started writing, were there any other sort of uh, uh, journalists my age or people my age doing the same thing? And I... I just recalled at the time there was one other guy, but there was a fellow in America that Richie Blackmore told me about at the time, and his name was Cameron Crumb. <laughs> and he was writing for Rolling Stone. And he, he, was, he was like exactly the same age as me and sort of uh, has moved on to 
greater things. But really, I don't think there are any sort of younger rock journalists till the advent of Kerrang. I think that sort of like kicked off, you know, uh, a new sort of breed of sort of uh, heavy rock journalists. Maybe with the exception of Steve Gett, who wrote for Melody Maker, but that, that was sort of a while after me anyway. So, so Pete, one of the other one of the other bands I didn't talk about the other day that that were big in the seventies or that they were about to explode in the eighties for definite it was Judas Priest. Um, yeah, I will. Yeah, I'm sure you would have probably interviewed them in the seventies. Yeah, I did. I interviewed. I, you know, I did the first interview of Judas Priest for Sounds when their first album came out. I loved them. I, I saw them initially when they were a support band. They were a three piece. They had like. Um, it was KK. Um, they had a, a there was a black guy on bass singing and the drummer. And uh, when their album came out, I loved. I mean, I loved it. I did the interview with Rob Halford. But what happened was then Jeff Barton took over and took my place. He thought he was a Judas Priest fan. Okay, so he he started taking all the Judas Priest interviews. Yeah, Jeff saw sort of like what happened was kind of Jeff did Kiss, Judas Priest. He did Rush in the early days. I did them as well. But he sort of like, you know, people got allocated to certain bands. That's why I said when I started writing, I had an open field in heavy rock because the other journalists had specific bands they wanted to write about. Yeah. Now, how big a deal was the new wave of British heavy metal in getting sounds to actually print an, an issue of Kerrang? Massive. I mean... The thing is, that I've really got to emphasise, pivotal to the new wave of British heavy metal and Kerrang! were two people. It's Jeff Barton and the editor Alan Lewis who came on board at Sound. And uh, I mean, I don't know who who created the sort of new album, like uh, uh, Mark, but it kind like, of, you know, it just, Jeff, Jeff and that really got into, he really sort of understood what was going on. There's all these new bands coming up were really influenced by sort of Deep Purpose, and it kind of came concurrently with punk. And, and the similarities were, if you look at people like Steve Harris and Death Leopard and people like that, they used to read all the music papers at, at, about their sort of heroes who were sort of, you know, playing in America and sort of, you know, it was like, you know, these, these superheroes. And it kind of, they, you know, they suddenly felt, well, maybe I could do this. Um, and and uh, so the response to like Jeff Barton writing about the new wave of heavy metal was massive. And what happened was, prior to, prior to uh, Kerrang! coming out, there was a couple of one-off magazines that came out that did really well. And Kerrang! came on the back of that. I mean, Kerrang! was initially going to be just like a, a one-off magazine, just to see how it went. Yeah, and which, which new wave of British heavy metal bands were you on board with? Uh, I did, you know, I loved, I loved Death Leopard, I loved Saxon, I loved, uh, I loved, oh, oh what was it, Vardis. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot, there's quite a lot of them. I like, I like the whole attitude because I, I was sort of managing a band at the time when I was writing, uh, Pete Townsend's brother in it, and we got a gig at a place called the, the, the Bandwagon in Kingsbury. Uh, and that was where the DJ called Neil Kay was, and the Bailey Brothers. And it was purely one of those venues where all these all these fans, it was, it was like an underground movement, all, all these fans went, and it was the first place you'd sort of hear Iron Maiden played, all those fans played, you know. So I loved that whole energy behind it. 
and there, there, there were quite a quite quite a few of the bands I like. Um, but you know, I was, again, I was kind of sort of out of the loop in a way because I was writing about a lot of major bands and that, and Jeff was sort of like hands on with the new wave of British heavy metal. I wasn't a mad fan of the name the new wave of British heavy metal, but I did understand it. Yeah, yeah. So one of the bands that was touted as being like, you know, they were going to be huge and they never made it was Diamond Head. Yeah. And I know Metallica have done them favours over the years by covering a lot of their oh. songs. But but, yeah. but back then, was there a lot of writers and sounds that thought that Diamond Head were the band that were going to make it big out of the whole genre? I don't think people single Diamond Head as being huge, but they were sort of tout. I mean, they, they, they had a big following. Uh, the paper loved them. There was bands, I remember visited bands like them and the Tigers of Pan Tang and people like that, that people sort of saw as being a crossover to America. And that was the, it was the same with punk. There was a lot of bands came out, but you just thought, but, you know, I never thought like, I thought for me, like bands like The Ruts would be huge in America or stuff like that. I never thought, sort of thought bands like Eater or the X-Ray Specs would be big. And it was those sort of bands, like Diamond Head had a, had a very sort of big sound, and they wrote, obviously they wrote great songs. So they, they were, but it's the same pretty much, it's the same with punk, when they come out, anything that came out that was like New Wave of Heavy Metal had a good chance of um, of like hitting a front page or getting a big article. And I think that the main thing that came out of that for me is that suddenly like that's where Lenny and Motorhead got recognised because they, they were really struggling for that. Yeah. Now, now, the other day when we talked, um, I asked you about the snobbery in a, with a lot of the sounds writers when it came to the rock bands. Was there still that kind of um, attitude when it was announced that they were going to do a, an episode of Kerrang? Absolutely. The only the only difference was prior to all that happening, the main core of journalists that were at Sounds left Sounds and they went to do a more kind of like elite upmarket magazine. So there's quite an open space. A lot of journalists came. But again, you know, I say that Jeff was integral to Kerrang! Because when he when he joined Sound, he joined about a year after me, he had publishing experience. He had like a lot of experience. He was he worked for the English arm of Marvel Comics. And and I think at heart, Jeff was a publisher. And so he he could liaise with the publishing people and, and and sort of like Alan Lewis and kind of sell them the idea of Kerrang! as being a viable proposition. So really, I think without Jeff, there would have been without that, there would have been no Kerrang! He made it happen. Yeah. Now, the first issue of Kerrang! Um, I'm sure you contributed to it. I did. Yeah. I think I, said, I, think, I, I, I thought it was ACDC. Was it ACDC on the cover? Did I get that wrong? No, you're correct. It was Angus Young on the cover. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, were, were, if you can remember, were all the other writers that contributed to the first issue of Kerrang, were they all from Sounds, or did Jeff go outside to get some articles? I think well, what happened with Kerrang was, I remember like what happened was, because Jeff was flying it by me and stuff like that, and we had a, I remember we had a meeting, and it was basically... It was really the idea of just getting a magazine together and whoever we could go on board to do it. And um, 
and and so it would have been sort of like mainly sort of uh, the the writers from sounds and photographers from sounds. I remember at the time I had to change my name to Daily. I remember why because I, I was working on sounds with a retainer, so I wanted to do stuff for Kerrang and get paid separately for it. But it it was kind of cobbled together the first issue. It was more about getting the issue out than rather kind of forging an identity or anything. It's just to see if there was an audience there that would that would would buy it. And going back to the snobbery, the thing was at the time because uh, this was around the time just just post-punk and everything, when punk came out, the people it took most by surprise were the record companies and the journalists, because they missed it. So at, so at the time, a new wave of heavy metal came out, and they, they were sort of pushing it. Journalists were kind of a bit more apprehensive about being critical of it, because it could have been paying their wages in the future. There wasn't that kind of sort of... Uh, that, neg- that negative attitude towards it as there was prior with sort of a heavy metal. Yeah. Now, now Pete, can you remember how how well the first issue of Kerrang! did? Because they probably had, the, whoever was publishing it probably had sales figures that it had to match expectation-wise uh, to print another one. And, of course, it went on to become one of the biggest selling music magazines in England in towards yeah. the middle and the late 80s. But, was there? Yeah. But was there? Were the expectations met in the beginning? Did you think? Like absolutely. You see, the expectations were big, but they weren't huge because Spotlight magazines, people they specialised in bringing like one-off magazines, like they said they did it before, but they did it on such a tiny budget that as long as it made money, then it was deemed sort of successful. So Kerrang! got a very positive response for the obvious reasons. It was a kind of a magazine that sort of their, their audience had been waiting for. Um, so, yeah, it did really, really well. I can't remember exactly how many it sold, but I think it pretty much sold out. Yeah. Can, can you remember when the band started really noticing the magazine? Because it went on to have a to be very powerful. It could make. I'm not saying it could make or break a band, but in a lot of ways, it it could, because if a band got a bad review and it had such a big readership, it could affect their sales. So, can you remember when when it, when when you heard first that the bands were taking an interest in how the magazine was doing? Well, you know what I think the thing is is that um, you're talking about make or break. The reality was there was a lot of bands Koran could make because there are bands. That are appearing Kerrang! that no none of the other papers would touch. There wasn't like a magazine that could cater to those to those uh, to those uh, bands. And if if you sort of read the other magazines at the time, they'd kind of do half-assed attempts at sort of like uh, you know acknowledging like the, the heavy metal thing. But because New Wave of British Heavy Metal was so much associated with sound, it almost had a copyright. Like if it was used in another paper. It kind of looked like they're using sound thing. Kerrang! Uh, the response from the uh, from the from the bands was pretty fast for a couple of reasons. One was because all the PRs that uh, sounds had developed a good relationship with had a sort of uh, had had like a, a vehicle for their bands, and two because all the writers that were writing for Kerrang, including myself and Jeff, had already developed a good relationship with the bands that were going to sort of feature in it. So if you've got you know, when you when you're dealing, when you've got like ACDC 
in your corner and you've got like Big Purple in your corner. Uh, uh, so, yeah, Richie Blackmore and uh, you've got Black Sabbath in your corner. The other band's going to look to that and think, well, I want to be in that magazine. And the reason, it, another thing is, uh, we got a really positive response from America because Kerrang! was kind of inspired by the glosses that came out of America. There's two particular magazines. One was called Circus and the other one was called Cream. And especially Circus was doing what Kerrang! was doing. It was writing about bands that other other papers didn't take seriously. So it kind of, like, in America, bands wanted to be in it because bands, A, wanted to sort of, any band in America wanted to make it in England, especially London first. And B, they, they, they sort of just saw, you know, they used to buy the magazines in the import shops. And the classic example of that is like Lars was a massive Kerrang! fan. All those people, there was no, they had no access to sort of like new wave of British heavy metal. They, they had to sort of speak it out because it's coming from England. Yeah. Pete, Pete, did you find when Kerrang! started to become popular that, uh, that sound started to cover less and less heavy rock because Kerrang was doing it. And I think, I'll tell you what happened was, like I say, there was a big sea change. When Punk came out, prior to Punk, all the magazines like NME, Melody Maker and Sounds kind of led the way. Music fans had absolutely no access to the kind of bands they liked, whether it was heavy metal, left field, anything like that unless they were the music paper. You couldn't get it on the TV. You couldn't get it on the radio. When Punk came out, um, the record companies and the journalists went, whoa, something's happened without us being aware of it. You know, suddenly the actual, the audience was, was kind of uh, predetermining what was popular and what wasn't. And uh, so they, they had to sort of, after that, things changed drastically, whereas... Prior to that, the media kind of told the audience what was good and bad. And after that, the media was following following the audience to let, you know, so they could tell us what was good and what was bad. You know? And the good thing about Kerrang! and that was that uh, anyone who was in the heavy rock at the time, we were a part of that sort of underground thing. We knew about it. It was huge before it got in the papers. Like, all these fans were massive in America. So... Kerrang! was the result of like like all these people who've been following these bands, kind of taking it up another notch. You know, they were younger. There was a kind of like their attitude, the way they dressed, the sort of uh, material they wrote about, chimed with a sort of audience who sort of embraced it. And it's like with punk that got their sort of uh, nod from bands like the New York Dolls and Iggy Pop and all the stuff that was happening before. They were kind of leading the way, so you know, it was the the, the suddenly the the magazines so sounds what it did after that. It kind of like I wrote the sounds for quite a long time, but it kind of went new wave, and it went kind of electronic sort of new order, then it went sort of oi, then it went at this and that, and it, it it generally it kind of I thought it kind of lost its way, sort of in pretty much in the early eighties, it started losing its way. Yeah, so, so Pete, how long did you uh, contribute writing for Kerrang! in the 80s? I wrote, actually, I've looked through stuff. I wrote all the way from the beginning, through the 80s, and and in the 90s. You know, the last stuff, I wrote stuff in the 90s as well. Um, initially, I was sort of doing loads of bands. I did this, uh, one thing I've still got to tell you about, I did this uh, classic thing. I went on the road with Motorhead. 
And the thing was, what we were doing, we were taking, there were three prize winners. These people entered a competition and they won a prize. So I take them on the road with Motorhead. And there was like two girls in the sky. And I, t- I took them, we had to go, I think it was Bingley or something like that, went, met Lemmy. And as soon as I got there, like these, the two girls were all over the band. They were all over Lemmy. And I was panicking. So I was thinking, like, I've got to look after these, these like young kids. They're prize winners, blah, 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 etc. What I found out at the end, Motorhead set up a competition, and the girls that had won were actually Motorhead groupies. So that was one of my first experiences right in there. But through the through the time, I did a lot of reviews. I did a lot of album reviews. Um, I went on the road with Paige Plant. I did, yeah, there's, uh, yeah, right up until the right up until the sort of early nineties, I wrote for them. And were you using your Toots Daily name, or did you go up with your own name? Uh, well, I was like initially I was using that. And then when I started writing for them again, when I did the page plot, I used my name because I wasn't writing for sound at the time. And, you know, I sort of used that. But yeah, Karain's gone, it's kind of metamorphosized over the years. It's like, it's like about sort of five different magazines if you look over the history. Yeah. Now, what was your take on uh, when MTV exploded? Because in talking to you for the, the, a couple of days ago, you were a huge mm-hmm. fan of... of, of Deep Purple and all these seventies bands that didn't really rely on the image. It was more the music and the musicianship. And then when MTV exploded, it kind of flip flopped a little bit. It was the songs were a little bit secondary, and it was all about image. What, what was your take on all of that? I, I mean, to be honest, I loved MTV because it's just any way to hear rock music. On, on you know, I remember when I first my first experience with MTV was kind of seeing. Uh, like in, in, it, it was the year the sort of Nirvana song came out, Pearl Jam came out. There was just like a whole load of great music. Um, this is where bands like Def Leppard and all those bands blossomed because they were TV. They were good. They were good sort of like they, they were they were easy on the eye. They did well. Kind of MTV when it came out, I thought it was a fantastic idea. And again, it kind of just sort of got, it gradually sort of, um, it became more about the content of the video than the music, which which I found quite depressing. Yeah, was there a lot of the um, the big bands in the US in the 80s, the likes of uh, like Bon Jovi, Rat, Motley Crue? Did you interview those, yeah. those guys at all? Yeah, I interviewed. I interviewed, I interviewed Rat, I interviewed Warren D. Martini from Rat, nice fella. And uh, and I interviewed Motley Crue uh, a couple of times. I interviewed Nicky Six when they came to England on the Theatre of Pain tour. And I, I, I my first experience of him, it was kind of all all style, no substance. He sort of uh, it was, you know, it was you know, I was sitting with him and he he drank a bottle of Jack Daniels. I'm still not sure it was actually Jack Daniels in the bottle because yeah. he, he wouldn't give me a swig. But he drank this bottle of Jack Daniels and he was asking me for drugs. All the every second question is, can you get any drugs, dude? You know, and uh, and and you know, I just looked at him as a sort of like uh, someone from a small town who'd lucked out, and just the whole sort of stance. You see, he almost looked like he studied a picture of Keith Richards, you know, sort of doing that sort of thing. And a lot of that stuff was those bands. I found a bit secondhand because it'd been done before and a lot better. Um, I could appreciate, you know, Motley Crue, I thought, were, you know, they, they were a really good 
pop rock band like Sweet or something like that. They really put on a good show, and and they, they were the sort of epitome. All these American bands, when I saw them, I remember when I went in the seventies. They were so professional, and everything was kind of like so choreographed. And they kind of sort of delivered that way, but with the exception of a few sort of singles and stuff like that, you know, I thought Bon Jovi. Uh, rat, poison, and stuff. They reminded me of bands I saw years ago, like Sweet. It was like glam rock to me. Yeah. Like, did you find over the years that the guys in Death Leopard changed a lot, or were they still the same guys that you knew from the new wave of British heavy metal? Um, considering, because I, I sort of, uh, I, I, Spent on Death Leopard pretty much not long after they started. So I've seen them go through all their dramas and everything. Considering how phenomenally huge they became, they kind of they changed very little. They're still fans. They're still like massive fans. And you you kind of you know I've seen them when there's been other people like Lemmy or people like that, and they're still kind of in awe of that. And they they've remained sort of. In my eyes, I you know I probably seen the other side of it. Uh, they've remained they, they, their feet they, they were grounded. But the thing was, them and Metallica got a huge kick up the arse from grunge came. You know, again they kind of sort of like you know a lot of bands you know went down sort of in flames during that period. So I think they realised that made them realise. You know, it gives you that that sense of mortality when one minute you're sort of filling out stadiums and the next minute you're not basically. Yeah. Now, now how surprised Pete were you uh, when Deep Purple got back together and did Perfect Strangers? Uh, not at all. I wasn't surprised when they did that because it was a case of, you know, uh, I think Rainbow were kind of sort of flagging a bit, losing direction then. The rest of the members were losing. You know, I think it was... a. Uh, I would say a huge percentage of it was down to money, so I wasn't that shocked at all. No. Okay. Did you interview any of the guys in the band when that al- for that album? Uh, yeah, I spoke to all of them. I knew all of them. Was, yeah. Ian Ian Gillen, uh, um Yeah, no, I did actually. I went to I went to some sort of German castle. Yeah, I spoke to all of them, and and they were very sort of changed people because I knew. You know, prior, you know, when, when when sort of Deep Purple were around, they were like they they were they were the biggest band in the world at one point. And again, I think what happened as the music musical sort of landscape changed, they kind of sort of their position went down and down. So you know, again, they they're actually really really nice people. Ian Pace, Roger Glover, and all that. And I think the crux of it, I find, the more talented people are the more kind of grateful they are for their success and the nicer people that they are. But I really didn't think that uh, Purple would last. It was purely, it was kind of sort of welded together by sort of uh, money. Yeah. Now, one of the guys I didn't mention in the fir- in our first chat, and I'm sure you've interviewed him over the years, was uh, David Coverdale. Yeah. Um, yeah. When he reinvented himself for the 1987 album, what was your what was your take on all of that? It was, you know, that David Coverdale is like one of those people because again, I was literally, I was I was there just when he joined, and like, you know, when he joined, you know, and he, I probably won't mind me saying he was like fat, he had a wonky eye, like they had to do a lot of work with him to sort of get him, 
And, you know, he was, you know, one minute he's doing cover versions and working the boutique during the day. The next he's in a sort of a huge band. Um, I initially was kind of underwhelmed with him. When the original White Snake came out, I called him a sort of third-rate Bob Seger, which really upset him a lot. Um, and I was I was quite impressed when he sort of reinvented himself. I mean, it was absolutely sort of a... It was kind of ludicrous. It was almost sort of spinal tap. But behind it, he had a fantastic voice that could carry it off. So I was I was impressed that he did it. And it's like, um, you know, as a joke, you know, I always when I meet him, he's sort of Lord Coverdale or Sir David or stuff like that because he's sort of quite grandiose. But he's sort of at home with it. So, yeah, I, I, you know, with him, you know, I'm really sort of impressed with his success and sort of long may it last. You know, it, it made sense to me at the time because he just totally... You've got all those people like Rod Stewart went to LA, all those people went to Los Angeles, totally kind of mutated into this kind of bizarre sort of West Coast LA kind of uh, show-busy type of animal. Yeah. yeah. Now, I remember in, in 87... There was two records came out more or less at the same time. And the writers were split into which band they thought would be the big the bigger, right? One of the records was Faster Pussycat's debut. And the other mm-hmm. one was Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. So which yeah. camp which camp were you in, Pete, back then? Can you remember? Absolutely Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses for me really reignited my interest in sort of metal straight away because they were, you know, they they were the real deal. The actual, you know, the people in the band were kind of, there was a kind of a, there was a honesty there that couldn't kind of be, be hidden. And it's, it, it, um, it, it reflected their whole career, if you like. Their whole career, you know, they, they sort of, were unable to sort of dance to the tune, if you like, and and really, initially, you know, that that whole LA Viper sort of all those sub scenes, Bastard Pussycat to me were kind of the the bad reflection of that, and Guns N' Roses for me did feel like the future of sort of rock music. Yeah, now you did you say you were at the the Marquee shows when they came over the first time? Yeah, I bet. Funny enough. I, I, for some reason, through a PR and people like that, um, I, I went to visit Guns N' Roses and when they first came to England, before they did the marquee, they were staying at a, in a flat rented place in, um, in High Street, Kensington, all staying in the same sort of like, you know, sharing bedrooms in that. And I, and I met them and I, I spent a lot of time with Izzy, you know, uh, somebody just, I think it was a PR somebody said, go and meet and see what you think, what you think, like, sort of like, give, give her a bit of a heads up on how to sort of promote them. But, so I spent a lot of time with them. And then I got a hold of a video camera and I videoed the whole marquee thing. They did a gig on a Sunday and we did this video and it's called, go to the audience, go, why aren't you in, why aren't you in church on Sunday? Basically, the audience thing and stuff like that but I, I went to the show and videoed it and the management got it in the end I never saw it again but I, I went to the show so they were phenomenal yeah. there was a massive buzz about again it, it was, it's a bit, I keep going back to the punk thing but it was a bit like that it's like the, the journalist and the record company got late to the game because 
you, you went to the marquee and there was a ready-made audience. They just these hardcore fans. And I saw the guy called Rob Dickens from Warner Brothers. And he said to me, this is like, it's the most exciting thing you'd seen in decades. Just, just, you could feel it, so something was happening. Yeah, so Pete, what did you make of um, the, the big thrash metal bands that came out then? Like the, you know, the big four, Metallic, Anthrax, Megadeth and Slayer. Were you a fan of all of those bands? Well, the thing is, I love thrash metal. I mean, since I was, since I was a kid, I loved bands like Budget Emo. I had all these fast metal bands. The only thing I thought of them, I thought Anthrax were really interesting. I loved the way some of these bands came in and mixed the genres. I think Anthrax was one of the bands that sort of did stuff like hip-hop and that with it. I can't, My main thing, my main thing that goes with Metallica as well, I thought the early albums were really badly produced. I found them really hard to listen to, but I, I, I loved I loved the energy of it. And again, it was kind of sort of uh, that new generation of people. And I sound like uh, you know I was probably in my mid twenties then, but I probably sound old. Was but you know it was like a new generation of kids mixing and matching all different types of music. And you got like with Metallica, James Hetfield was a massive, massive punk fan. Whereas Lars is a classic rock band, and it, it you really sort of felt it in the music. But initially, when it came out, I thought it was a bit cartoonish, like like, like the lyrics and the whole image and stuff like that. But the main thing was, I just thought it was badly produced. Yeah. So, what was your take on um, some of the bands that followed the trends in the eighties that that were big at the time? And I, I'm thinking the likes of Saxon. When they did Destiny, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be one example. That a lot for a lot of fans, they just completely alienated their existing fan base and really didn't pick up. Saxon, yeah, with Destiny. I I absolutely love Saxon. For me, and and you know what, I saw them. You know, uh, uh, it was a really weird. You know, I had not kind of Saxon. I did when they first came out. I, you know, I saw them, I absolutely loved them. I just loved their enthusiasm, very down to earth. And they kind of went off the radar for a bit. But I remember going to a festival in Germany and I saw them, Judas Priest, and it was just like, Saxon were a band that kind of fought for last. I really think, you know, I think I think what they did is what they did. I think a lot of bands did some pretty shit albums in sort of the middle of the... And they did, especially when... Grunge and stuff like that came out, you know, Metallica and Leopard did their sort of was it slang and reload and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think Saxon were one of those bands that they could be unpopular in one fan base, but they always had a fan base somewhere and just kept going. Yeah, yeah. And and, and they were sort of kind of impervious to criticism because they've had it all. You know what I mean? Yeah, but what I'm trying to what I'm getting at is the bands that. Followed a trend, and you could sniff the bullshit when they did it. It was like you, you, you just—that's not you. You're just doing it because you have to do it. Yeah, I think there was a there was definitely yeah. an element of that. Yeah, they, they, uh, without a doubt, I think I think pretty much a huge amount of the bands that came out of the late seventies and early eighties did that. You know, there's so many examples. You know, Motley Crue doing Anarchy in the UK or the USA, whatever they called it. Um, there's, you know, there's few bands that were that were impervious. I'm trying to think of one actually that wasn't because if you look at De- uh, Deep Purple, they they kind of then uh, music became sort of more Euro rock. Um, I think the thing is, 
with 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 heavy rock bands, um, although they are very sort of fan led, I think throughout their life they've had to kind of really stick to their guns. So I can't, you know, I can understand fans getting upset, but I find I think it's kind of, it's impossible to keep everybody happy. And and I because I because I've worked in PR and done other things. I can see the sort of pressure comes from record companies and they've just got to put food on the table at the end of the day. So I'm, I'm sort of like, well, if you don't like it, just don't buy the album. Yeah. Go on, Pete. No, I was just going to say, if you went to see them live, you find most of these bands, if you went to see them live, they did all their sort of classic material. Yeah. Now, there was bands that came out in the end of the 80s that I, I personally loved them and they were hard to define. and when you look at all the genre they were up against, there was a lot of the hair bands, and I'm specifically yeah. talking about King's X, uh, Living Color, and uh, Dan Reed Network. Were you a fan of those bands? Love them. And you know what? You sort of mentioned three bands that are uh, that sort of were uh, that featured musicians of color, if you like, whatever you say. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so they had a completely different sort of perspective on the music. Um, there's, you know, with with sort of King's X, there's a lot of Hendrix and and stuff like that, and Dan Reed. They're pretty much their own people, and they're producing what I should say just music. You know, I wouldn't call them like a thrash band, heavy metal band, or anything like that. In Living Color, were like a band that was sort of beloved by every genre of artist. You know, they sort of crossed that ball because they had something new to say, and, and that they were sort of pioneers in that way. Yeah, now Pete couple of general questions before we wrap it up. And I know you've had a little bit of time to think about this. Um, what are the worst interviews you've ever done? Right, okay. Yeah, I did, I did, you know, bad interviews are a bit like sort of PESD, you know what I mean? Post-war traumatic syndrome. <laughs> you don't tend, tend to cherish that sort of uh, thought. So, um, not bad interviews, but tough interviews. The toughest interviews I've done include uh, Aerosmith. The first time I interviewed Aerosmith was in the sort of early 80s, and it was when uh, basically their careers were fucked. It was just, you know, like they all, you know, they they sort of done that tour where they lost money. They got the biggest band in America who lost money, and they sort of went down in a haze of drugs. And, uh, and I managed to sort of, the way I managed to locate them, because I went to record companies, record companies wouldn't let me sort of speak to them, they're not about or anything like that. I was in a comedy club one night, and I was chatting to this girl, and it just a conversation come up, and it turned out she was Steven Tyler's drug dealer. So I immediately jumped on that and said, well, can you get me in touch with him? And Steven Tyler was living in a sort of flop house somewhere in New York. Um, and, uh, and eventually, we organized an interview that sort of happened at, four in the morning and uh, Tyler was absolutely off his tits he was with his girl sort of Sarinda and it, it sort of it was it was one of the most exciting things that happened in my life but no actual interview transpired there's nothing sort of coherent that I could get out of it um, I've already told you sort of like uh, about Nikki Six a difficult interview I did and it's like I'm not being difficult I did an interview with a really 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 famous rock musician I can't name because I'll get shot. Oh, shit. What it was, uh, he, he was in a band that was sort of, uh, 
renowned for being off their heads and then getting getting clean. And uh, I, 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 the interview was set up in a photography studio, and the musician turned up, and he was absolutely looked like a corpse. He looked like, like he was grey green. He could barely stand up. There was all the sort of management company putting makeup on him and everything like that. And uh, uh, and he, you know, and we did this interview, and it's I've, I've interviewed a lot of musicians who've been absolutely wasted, but the whole story of telling me throughout the interview about was about being sober and how happy he was being clean, sort of falling asleep halfway through sentences. And what made it even more surreal, like the management acting, it's like the king's new clothes, you know, it's like acting as nothing was happening, and it was it was quite a sort of a a painful experience, and I thought not naming for two reasons. One, because he's still alive, and I can get sued. But the other thing is, it's quite a serious thing. You know what I mean? I didn't sort of take, but that again, I, I did actually write a feature about that. But I couldn't, you know. I normally, if somebody's kind of wasted or sort of at their edge or something, I'll, I'll write about it. But this was this wasn't that funny. Um, and uh, these are sort of interviews, like I think you know, one interview I did. I did an interview with Alice Cooper, who's an absolute hero, and it was a uh, you know he's, he's a consummate professional, and you know I did it was the earliest interview I've done in my life. I did it because he sort of he plays golf at about five in the morning, and um, so I did this interview about eight thirty in the morning, and it went really well. Spoke about stuff and things like that, and when I wrote the feature. I included some of his interviews that he'd done earlier, sort of 30 years before, you know, and his, and, uh, the, his PR rang me up and said, you know, I really like the interview, but Alice was really upset. And I'm sort of going, why? Really? Why? And he goes, because you printed one of his old interviews that had the curse word in it. And Alice is like a devout Christian now. And, you know, he doesn't want it sort of reflecting on his reputation. Which I thought, yeah, somebody sort of guillotines and stuff like that in their shows, but it's very, it's very sort of serious. And then the first, the first uh, job I did with Ross Halpin, we did a interview of Michael Schenker, um, and it's literally when MSG came out after he'd left UFO, and we did this photo session, and we got, yeah, you know, Ross got Michael to wear these false breasts, a plastic breast, and this cat with wings on it. And like a, a big sort of replica machine gun water pistol, and it was a front cover story. And when it came out, um, the the Rudolph, like the band, his brother, and that they went crazy because it's like you know Germany, you know, because they're still living down the war in Germany and that. And he had, you know, having Michael carrying a machine gun and that, what message was it sending out to sort of uh, people? So it's been more that way. Yeah, the actual worst person I've ever interviewed in my life, and this might come as a weird one, was Steven Seagal, you know, the actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did, like, he he bought a blues album out, and uh, I thought oh, I'd be funny to sort of interview him, because I just thought it was fun with that. And uh, I did this interview with him, it was over the phone, but he was the most obnoxious, nasty, sort of like, small-minded person I've ever spoken to my life. It was sort of painful because I'm sort of doing this interview thinking, look, I'm only interviewing because he's, he's a blues artist. He plays blues guitar and I'm only doing this interview because I thought you were quite an entertaining star and it was like, it was like, it was, you know, I think he thought he's some kind of royalty or something like that. And I could say, 
the worst interviews are usually for the most unlikely people. Yeah. One of the guys I've heard is uh, can be a bit cranky, and I don't know whether you've interviewed him, is uh, Ginger Baker. Ginger Baker? I've never interviewed, but I'm not, my, my only experience of Ginger Baker is that and he was on a, he was on the same label as Nazareth and that, and I once went up to the offices, and I walked into an office, and he just bent over a record player, putting a record on, and he just turned around, looked at me, and went, why don't you just fuck off? And that's the only interaction I've had with him. That was enough. Yeah. Uh, have you ever interviewed Meatloaf? Yeah. That was another one. That was a, I did an interview with Meatloaf, um, and uh, it started off, I got to the hotel, and he was absolutely, he looked like he was on tranquilizer or something. He was standing by the window and just pointing at Hyde Park, man. He's just going, look at that. Look at him amazing. Look at that grass. You know, this went on for about sort of 10, 15 minutes. Absolutely sort of spaced out. And then I sort of sat with him and he kind of warmed up. He got into professional mode. He was just sort of, I don't know if he was meditating or what. It was a strange experience. Yeah. Now, when you look back at grunge music, the, like three of the singers in probably four of the biggest bands are all dead now. Like Scott mm-hmm. Weiland to be one, Chris Cornell, Lane Staley. Mm. Um, have you interviewed all of those guys? I've interviewed, I've interviewed uh, Chris Cornell and uh, Scott Weiland are the two people I've interviewed, yeah. Scott Weiland, I've heard from Mick Wall, kept postponing the interview. Then it was on, then it was postponed, then it was on. He could hear him in the next room screaming and throwing stuff and all that. Did you have any similar experience with him? Absolutely. I mean, like, Chris, with, uh, with Scott Weiland, and I, I sort of interviewed him in Stone Temple Pilots, and I interviewed him. You know, the worst time I interviewed him was when he was with Velvet Revolver, and it was basically, you know, and he was, the main thing about Scott, he was on and off the wagon. So, like, one minute, you know, he sort of quite, quite um, receptive and the next minute it'd be difficult and um, there's been loads of times where I've interviewed him and I have to sort of wait hours to speak to him. He's quite, you know, he's very paranoid, very kind of defensive. You know, the Stone Temple Pilots, when they came out, they were kind of regarded as a grunge light. They were sort of like an afterthought when grunge came out. So he's very kind of, he, he was really desperate to keep, he had his persona up, you know, like friend of Courtney Love and sort of, you know, all these people that he, you know, hung out with. But, at the, at, you know, at, at the bottom of it all, I really, really liked him and he was a fantastic interview. You know, there's certain people that you interview and you can absolutely ask them whatever you want and they'll give you a straight answer to the point that, you know, when you're transcribing it, you sort of think, I better tone some of this down. But, um, he, he was he was definitely hard work. I did a classic interview I did with him was when Stone Temple Pilots reform, and I had to go around his house he was staying in, and we literally got there and a personal sort of assistant goes, Scott's not ready yet. He'd be here in a sec. Scott's not ready. It's all blah blah. And then when I finally got to meet him, he was absolutely hammered. I mean, absolutely hammered. He put on weight. He didn't sort of uh, uh, sort of you know didn't look good. Did a great interview, but you know. When he turned up for the photo session, he was sort of looking at his coming house. Look at this! And he had like two different pairs of shoes on, stuff. And again, it was a bit like this fellow I told you about. You know, was off his head with all these people around. You know, Scott Wyland was a massive liability, but he was a huge earner. You know what I mean? He was a huge, huge sort of star. Um, 
and a very, very sad story. I like I liked him a lot, but he had a very tragic story, like his brother, you know, sort of had an overdose, he had sort of all that stuff in his family. You know, I found the crux of grunge was when grunge came out and I loved all the bands, I loved Hell Jazz, I loved Nirvana. They were like basically in Soundgarden, they were basically amazing rock bands with very interesting singers. It was a bit like the Sex Pistols was sort of like a rock band with this interesting kind of eccentric singer. And and that's what made it, you know, that's what made grunge for me. Um, Chris Cornell, I had pleasure of interviewing. I've, I've loved, I loved all his solo stuff. And I did a, did a really long interview with him in Los Angeles. And again, fascinating character. He's like just more sort of, there's a big difference between that and a lot of the you know, new wave of heavy metal bands and stuff like that. A lot of them were kind of sort of two-dimensional or kind of sort of, doing what they thought, you know, you'd think heavy rock songs do. You know, Chris Cornell was an incredibly interesting person with a lot of interest to chat to, and him hanging himself completely took me by surprise. I mean, the story about that is the photographer that I worked with all the time, Ross, spoke to him like two days before, and Chris said, come up to the gig, come and see me, we'll meet up, and he's like a perfectly good mood and that, and that absolutely shocked me, and it's kind of, it's kind of really tainted the grunge music thing like the start of Cobain is very very dark and very very sad you know because you know you've got one side you've got the Motley Crews and all those people glorifying the excess and the other side the people that are doing it like Lane Stanley people like that dying it's very very sort of uh, dark and sad yeah Pete did you ever interview Kurt Cobain no no I met I met sort of Dave Grohl again Kurt Cobain was another person that you know people got and they just sort of you know, there's a certain clique of people that interviewed him, you know, so no, I never, they could never got near him. Yeah. Well, what about the Kiss guys? Did you ever interview any of them at all or did Jeff Barrett mm-hmm. do them all? Yeah. No, I love, I love Kiss. So normally, Jeff Barton was the person, the go-to man for Kiss. But I, I interviewed him when they bought an album out called The Elder with um, Lou Reed, sort of wrote a couple of songs for him. And I loved them. I thought they were fantastic. I've really got... I love Gene Simmons. I did an interview with Paul Stanley like, a few years ago, but it was I did it for a magazine called Mojo, which is kind of quite highbrow. It's sort of, you know, normally have sort of like the Beatles and the Stones and these sort of like expert analysis on them. I did an interview with him, and it was absolutely one of the best interviews I've ever done. And it also got the best reaction in Mojo for the interviews in there. Just fine. They're really, really nice, down-to-earth people. I like Gene Simmons. He calls me the pole. I call him the Jew. Um, and I, I've always, a kid to me, I just like, uh, I went to see them in, first time I saw in America, it was like going to watch American wrestling or something. They're unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to talk for a few minutes, Pete, about reviews. Um, have you ever done an album review or a live review? And you were being honest and what you thought the album wasn't great or the, or the show wasn't great and the band went after you because of it. Um, yeah, I did like I did like an album review, but it's probably before your time because it was like a band called Cockney Rebel, Steve Harley, mm-hmm. and uh, and when I first interviewed him, he was like punk before punk. He was sort of like I hate guitars, I hate sort of like all these hippie bands and stuff like that. And then he transformed into that. He got sort of the LA thing. He's only a guitarist in his band and stuff like that. And I wrote I wrote a review of it. He played in Victoria. I remember it. 
and he just really laid into me sort of the next the old interview was like you know I couldn't even ask one question he just sort of ripped me a new one as they say the interview was sort of titled Mr. Soft Gets Nasty um I've done I mean I've done I've done a few critical interviews but uh, reviews and stuff like that but my experience of sort of heavy rock bands with people like that you know if, if you if, if they know you and you know them, they kind of take, they do take it on board. It's only if you know you write sort of vindictive stuff like that, you know, that it can work against you. I mean, I did a not a review or a or a sort of thing, but I did a I did a write a whole piece about Richie Blackmore, you know, when he sort of got you know he's into all his sort of Renaissance music stuff like that, and I and I really kind of like the crux of what I was saying is you know I love Deep Purple and that, and I love. I'm a fan of his, but I just can't go down that route with it. I just thought it was just medieval music played badly. And I didn't get a direct response from Richie Blackmore, but in an interview he did with another paper, he kind of had a dig at me. And uh, his mother-in-law manager just, you know, they shut me off out. You know, I've never, I've never sort of spoken to him since. So, yeah, you, know, you yeah. do get sort of the aftermath of that. Yeah, so what about a PR person? PR people ever gone after you for something? No, I mean, the, the main thing about PR, let's say, is, um, oh, not PR, the thing I told you about, um, the Alice Cooper thing, the one band, I just remembered one band, here's <laughs> an interview, I did an interview with Peter Mensch, who manages uh, Metallica, and, mm-hmm. he's, and he managed, uh, you know, you name it, he's managed it. And I did an interview with him, and what it was, we did like sort of a, feature on the larger than life personalities in the business and he's sort of a super manager and everything like that and the interview went fine no problem and then I got this letter what it was during the interview he told me he's planning to do some huge show with an opera singer and everything like that and then and then when he when when he came out he, he got in touch with me after that he goes I told you not to mention any of that blah 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 which he didn't I told you not and he he just wrote, I will never, ever do an interview with you or Classic Rock, which is the magazine I was working for at the time, again. So that's the kind of thing things will be. You know, if, you get, if you get, like, attacked for doing a feature about something you slagged off, you expect it. But it, it's usually like Alice Cooper, it comes from the most extraordinary places. You sort of say something and you haven't really, really realised you've said it. Yeah. Yeah, so Pete, final question before I leave you go. Um <laughs> Top of your wish list for people that you've never interviewed. But what, alive or dead? Um, okay, let's go alive because you can't interview the dead people. Oh, there's, there's, I'm trying to let me think now. Who would I like to uh, interview? Uh, you know, there's people I like to interview, like like Eric Clapton. I'm not a massive fan of, but I'm sure he'd be sort of a great interview. Um, oh, it's like. Oh my god. I'll throw a name at you. Uh Phil Collins. Oh yeah. Phil Collins. Phil Collins from Genesis. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to I mean you could throw any name big name like that at me and I'd I'd love to sort of I'd like to interview Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones. Um I'd like to interview I mean there's not a lot of people the thing is nowadays there's not a lot of people that you can't get interviews with. Yeah. So most of sort of the uh, yeah, I'd love to interview John Bon Jovi in, okay. in, in sort of in the right circumstances because it's just sort of you know I think people that have got such long careers that last you know they can offer you an interesting perspective on it I think that'd be uh, fantastic 
but pretty much, you know, if people would say to me, who would you like to interview, dead or alive? But instantly I'd say Jimi Hendrix. So people, I'd love to interview Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin. I thought they were sort of uh, interesting sort of characters. I'd like to interview Dave Grohl. I've never interviewed him. I actually got offered an interview with him once, but I backed off. It was for a big magazine. I just didn't feel qualified to sort of do a, a Food Fighters uh, piece. Uh, so I like to see I've done. I like to interview Dave Mustaine because I, I've socialised with him, and I found it to be a very interesting character. But I've never, I've never interviewed him. I think it'd be quite interesting. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of people left that I would like to interview, which makes it. And I find what I find is, is like there's people I've known like Jeff Beck. who always become a bit more interesting and a bit deeper as the years go on. Yeah, well, they have more. They have more of a story to tell than the younger guys. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's why I always found Lemmy was a great interview because he was kind of an elder statesman. People like him and Ian Hunter from Not the Hoop, they started late in their life, so they've got a really kind of a more balanced, realistic view on life. You know, I'd probably write if you interview Missy Six in about twenty years' time if I'm alive. You know, that's if he's alive. Yeah, these are like, I always find it interesting. You know these bands, it's like, you know, Leopard were a bit like that, but they've got out that thing that bands are almost locked in a period. Um, just how they survive and how they sort of, uh, how they cope. Yeah, yeah. So, Pete, I'm going to leave you go. Thanks for spending a few hours with me. It's, then, been, a, it's been a pleasure. And you too. You take care, Richard. Good luck, mate. Yeah? All right. Thanks very much. All right, Pete. Bye. There you go. There is the second hour spending with Pete Mikowski. All kinds of stories again this week. Glad that Richie delved into all the artists. And then Pete was giving them up left and right as well. And if you missed our one that we had with Pete, that was back on episode 502. And you can head up to uh, focusonmetal.net and go to the uh, episodes there for 2021 and hit up 502 and it's right there. Or you can get it off of iTunes or wherever else you get our show at. But yeah, Pete Part 1 is back on episode 502. And while I remember it, and I just thought about it as I did the intro and then I started doing everything else. And then I thought, oh yeah, I probably should mention that as of the night that I'm mixing this, there is still available, if you head up to kkspriest.com, that uh, he does have some signed vinyl that he's doing for the pre-release of the debut album of the band. And like I said, as I'm doing this tonight, I still believe that there are signed copies in silver, most metal vinyl of, again, Sermons of the Sinner. And hopefully we'll be seeing that uh, towards the end of August. And, you know, again, signed copy, silver vinyl, looking very metal. But also there's some black vinyl up there. The CD is up there. He's got some T-shirts. I think he's got some hats as well. So he's got some other good merch going. So, again, that's kkspriest.com. You guys, uh, you know... Everybody loves KK out there, and I think that I speak for Richie and myself. We would really love to see that guy out on the 50th anniversary tour with Priest. I know it's not going to happen, but one can always wish, right? But anyways, make sure that you uh, support KK with his new band, KK's Priest. And speaking of supporting, again, thank you for supporting Focus on Metal been doing it a long time and it's great that a lot of you guys have been listening right from the very beginning we definitely appreciate it we appreciate our radio partners as well for always being with us and we're going to keep doing it for as long as we possibly can but for this week 
That's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.